And before I start, there's actually a little apology I want to make. Sometimes I'll probably say some things which are wrong. I admit that. But sometimes I might say some things which might communicate something differently than what I intended. And someone lovingly raised it to me during the week that a comment that I made in a sermon two weeks ago could have implications that actually stretch beyond what I intended to say. So I just want to clarify that. The statement was when we did the sermon on the Holy Spirit, I made a statement that because I believe in the inerrancy and the sufficiency of Scripture, I don't believe that any of these spiritual gifts have ceased at any point in time. Now, while I stand by that statement, one of the possibilities by making a statement like that is that it could have implied that if you don't believe in the ongoing nature of spiritual gifts, that somehow I'm, that I could have been saying that you don't believe in errancy or the sufficiency of scripture. And that's certainly not what I meant to communicate. What I meant by the statement was that because I believe in the Bible as being the authoritative word of God, looking to that is what I need to form my beliefs about things. So even if, it, if I look at the scriptures, and so this is obviously a conclusion I've come to from the scriptures, even though it may not suit my personal preferences. Um, so that's what I meant to communicate is because I look at this and this is what guides my thinking and this is the conclusion I've come to looking at God's word, um, that was all what I was meaning to communicate. I was not meaning to communicate that if you hold a different view and I reckon the majority of the people in this church would hold a different view. Um, I wasn't implying that you have a lesser view of scripture than I do because so many of the great scholars that I look up to would hold a very different view than I on that one. So if that, if that comment was heard by you in that way, um, my apologies, that wasn't the intent. Um, but thank you too for uh, those who raised that to me. Um, and yeah, if you've got any questions at any time, I love it when people come and talk to me because I'd much rather someone say, did you mean this? Than to think, oh man... Um, He just said this about me, so thanks for that. Okay, we're going to continue in the book of Acts. We're up to uh, chapter 12. Keith um, preached last week. It was Keith's first time preaching here. Uh, It was a fantastic sermon and and a wonderful reminder uh, of God working through everyday people for the building of his church. But we're going to open up in prayer now as we look to Acts chapter 12. Heavenly Father, it is... Uh, with deep dependence upon you, that we call upon you in prayer. It's not just a routine of something you do before you preach a sermon, but Lord, I and we all desperately need you. We know that the Bible is your word given to instruct us. Lord, help us to see with clarity the things that you intended us to see, receive and respond to in faithfulness. Help me to speak clearly And Lord, help us to be willing and submissive to your word this morning. We ask in Jesus' name, amen. Now, we don't hear too much talk about kings these days, do we? Like in Australia, we've got a prime minister, or you hear about presidents in other parts of the world, but you don't hear too much talk about kings. Certainly, there are nations that still have kings today, But when we think about most of the political systems that we are familiar with, whoever is the leader in those countries doesn't have ultimate authority to do whatever they want, do they? When you think about the Prime Minister of Australia or the President of the United States of America, they might plan to do something, 
But if they don't get the votes of other people to carry that out, they can't actually do it. But in the ancient world, if you were the king, what you said went. There was nothing to contest it. You didn't require an approval vote in order to get your ideas across. In fact, if someone questioned it or disobeyed, there were serious consequences. But whenever you read about kings and rulers in the Bible, that's the sort of authority they had. What they said went. They had the ability to make a clear call that affected all people. And we do have some nations who still operate like this today. But as I said, the majority, particularly in the Western world, they need other people to vote and support the ideas rather than just saying, this is what we're going to do. But sometimes when leaders have uncontested rule, there can become a sense of pride and this sense of, I'm invincible, nobody can stop me. And I think it would be a really interesting study to go through the Bible and just look at all of the people, either kings or individuals, who defied the rule of God and what were the consequences. And I think you'll find out it didn't work out real good for any of them. The old expression about the definition of insanity is doing the same thing, expecting a different result. How often do people just defy God as the true king and ruler of this world and think that somehow it's going to fare better for them than it did for everyone else who's done it before them. My favourite poem poem I've quoted a number of times because I know it in its entirety. History repeats itself. Has to. Nobody listens. So often we forget and we don't learn from those who have gone before us. And there's plenty of people around us today who make the same mistake like King Herod does in this passage, who greatly underestimate God. In fact, when you look through the the passage that we've just had read, it begins with Herod presuming that he's the ultimate authority, ordering the execution of James, putting Peter in prison. But in the end, it is Herod himself who is brought to nothing struck down by God. So the idea of the power and the authority of God is a theme from start to finish in our passage. And the thing that's possibly even more surprising is that in our reading, even the Christians at times greatly underestimate who our God is and what he can do. This morning as we look through this, uh, this passage, verses 1 to 5, and look at the nature of Herod opposing God and his church, We see a God who rescues in verses 6 to 11, praying in faith, verses 12 to 19, and a God who opposes the proud. King Herod was, in many ways, much like his uncle. Herod Antipas, who Jesus stood before on trial, did great things to try and bring Christianity to an end. Now, King Herod, which was a title that was given to him by uh, Emperor Caligula, is the first one to officially execute one of the apostles. Sure, we've seen the first martyr as we've gone through earlier in Acts. We saw Stephen was martyred. But James was the first of the apostles to be killed. Now, it sometimes gets confusing in your Bibles because there's too many people with the same name. I remember thinking there was only one Mary in the Gospels. 
There's like four of them. And there's at least two Jameses. So just in case you think this, this James who got his head cut off is made to come back later in the chapter. This is the apostle, the, the sons of Zebedee, James and John. The one referred later into the chapter is the, the half-brother of Jesus and becomes the head of the, the Jerusalem church. But up until Stephen's death, the Jewish people were generally sympathetic towards the Christians. But after that point, it goes significantly downhill. When Herod sees that the Jews are pleased to see the Apostle James executed, he kind of thinks, hey, they like this. I'm on a bit of a roll. And sadly, it reminds me far too much of my primary school days. I used to love to do things to get attention. And if I got a response, I just did more and more, no matter how stupid it was. And so when he sees the response of having James executed, his next move is, next Apostle. Peter has him imprisoned. It says for the intention to to bring him out before the people, which could either mean to put him on trial, but most likely to have him also publicly executed before the people. As an observer, as you read through these verses, you could think if you didn't know the whole story, this isn't looking good for the church, is it? Potentially we might have the execution of two of the apostles of the church. Is this going to bring the church to an end? We asked that same question when we saw Paul. He was just trying to totally annihilate the church. But as we were reminded last week by Keith, the church didn't need the ongoing life of the apostles in order for it to sustain and for the gospel to go forth. So much of the early church growth happened through everyday Christians who scattered after the persecution of Stephen. But from Herod's perspective, he's like, I'm going to show you Christians who really is king. It's not this king, the so-called king of the Jews that you claim to be a follower of. I'm going to show you who's really got authority. And while Herod's trying to parade his authority, show how big and mighty he was and how much he thought he was, I love the insight of verse 5 of how the church responded. Peter was kept in prison But earnest prayer for him was made to God by the church. Here is Herod thinking, I am high and mighty. I can do whatever I want. And the church is praying earnestly. Because in times of trouble, you go to the one who is the highest you can go to. They don't try and plead with Herod, say, oh, Herod, settle down, let let Peter go. They're earnestly in prayer before God. That language of earnest prayer is the exact same language used of Jesus as he's praying in the Garden of Gethsemane. That is the extent of their earnest, deep dependency upon God in bringing Peter before him. So how does it play out? It's probably worth noting that Peter's actually been imprisoned already as we've gone through the book of Acts. Back in Acts chapter 5, Peter and a number of others were put in prison and an angel busts them out. Now that's probably got to give you a bit of explanation why there's so much extra security for Peter. He's got two soldiers, one on each side. He's got double chains, which is more than normal. There's guards. I think Herod's like, I'm going to make sure this happens and this happens good this time. Nothing's going to sabotage my display of my authority. But at the same time, 
by setting up all of these things, he's actually providing for and setting up for the great glory of God when he rescues and saves his people. But there's one thing which you probably don't notice when you're casually reading through it, which I want to highlight, is let's think about the setting. James has had his head chopped off. Peter's been put in prison. Most likely the same thing's about to happen to him. Not exactly your, your thing you're most excited about. And what's Peter doing? Peter's fast asleep. It says it's even the very night when, when Herod's about to bring him out the next day, his head's likely to come off. He is perfectly fast asleep. Now, I know I've said to many people on a number of times, I am a fantastic sleeper. If there was such thing as a spiritual gift of sleep, I've got it. I can sleep anytime, anywhere. But that being said, there are still sometimes some things far less significant than what Peter's got before him that keep me up at night. And here's Peter, fast asleep. That is a trust in a God. That is trust in God, knowing that I don't know what the outcome holds, I know who I belong to, and I know it will be good. When I say he's got a trust in God, he's not trusting in God to the extent where he thinks, I know God's going to get me out tomorrow. He doesn't know that. I mean, we've already seen James, his outcome wasn't as positive as getting out. He probably presumes his head's going to get chopped off unless God does something else. He said, I would rather trust God. Whatever comes, he will provide and it will be best. Wouldn't you and I love a faith like that? That no matter what comes our way, no matter how big and huge it might be, that we can be relaxed and confident knowing that whatever it is, whether it be good, difficult, our God will sustain, our God will provide, our God will do what is best for us. And if you think, oh, of course he's tired, he's in, he's in prison, you're going to have a sleep. He's fast asleep. Just look at some of the descriptions we see in the passage. Angel comes into the room, lights up the room. Peter's still sleeping. He has to give him, give him a good jab to wake him up. And even until the point that he actually gets all the way out of the prison, even up to that point, Peter still hasn't really figured out that this is reality and actually happening. So he's a far better sleeper than I ever could be. Sometimes you might be curious about some of the other details. You think, well, okay, the chains fell off. But it says they went past a couple of guards. And we don't really know the details of how all of that works. As you know, I've done a bit of voluntary work inside prisons and while things would have changed in prisons over the years, I'm sure Peter didn't have Foxtel to, to be able to watch the St Kilda, first reference for the year. <laughs> but from all time, prisons are really good at doing something, keeping inmates as inmates. Keeping them in. And if you were a guard and someone under your watch was to escape you are going to receive the punishment that that person should have received. 
everything that Herod orchestrated for the intention of bringing glory to himself was beautifully used to bring glory to God. All of these extra security measures just heighten more the greatness of the God who rescues and saves. And so in verse 11, Peter concludes, And Peter came to himself. Interesting expression. He said, Now I am sure that the Lord has sent his angel and rescued me from the hand of Herod and from all the Jewish people was expecting. You think? You finally figured out. Chains came off. An angel took you out. You went through past a couple of guards. Gates just opened up and you go, Oh, now I get it. God's opened this all up for me. He knows. My God has provided far more than I ever could have imagined. But what about those who are praying earnestly for Peter? Peter's first response is a wonderful response. Once he finally figures out what's going on, he's like, Christians need to hear about this. And so he runs off to the house of John Mark's mother where the people were gathered and probably is where they are praying. And he wants to go and share that with them. One thing I think I regret, sometimes it happens in Christian circles, is we are so quick to ask for prayer for things and so slow to actually talk about and communicate and give thanks when God answers those prayers. So please, when God has been doing things in your life, do encourage one another by sharing them. And do praise God for his work within your lives. But what a wonderful praise point. Imagine as he comes to where the people are gathered and praying for him, they must be over the moon. But the response is kind of embarrassing. When he knocked at the door of the gateway, a servant girl named Rhoda came to answer. Recognising Peter's voice in her joy, she did not open the gate, but ran and reported that Peter was standing at the gate. But they said to her, you're out of your mind. But she kept insisting that it was so, and they kept saying, it is his angel. But Peter continued knocking, and when they opened, they saw him and were amazed. Doesn't that sound strange? Here is a room of people earnestly praying for Peter in his imprisonment. As Peter comes to the place where they're praying for him, and they see a wonderful answer of prayer, and it's kind of like they almost refuse to believe the very thing that they're praying for. The servant girl, she got it straight away. She heard his voice and she was convinced. But when she goes and tells the people who are praying for Peter, they're like, nah. And even when she repeatedly tried to convince them, this has happened, this is really Peter, they're like, no, it's just his angel. That's a challenging thought in a number of ways, isn't it? Challenging in the sense of thinking about when we pray, do we pray with eagerness and fervour? And then on top of that, if we and when we do pray with eagerness and ferventness, do we actually get surprised when God answers the things that we bring before him? I've been in so many discussions where people are shocked that this person they've been praying for for years finally came to know and trust in Jesus as their saviour, as though that shouldn't happen. Or someone who had a major illness they'd been praying for for a long period of time and they were healed. So what? God actually did something we asked about? 
The one who can do abundantly more than all that we've asked or imagined. And for the poor old guards who let him go, or didn't let him go, who were on watch, they got that death sentence. But what about Herod? We see uh, sitting just a little bit further down the track, there's an issue there with Tyron set on. And they come together together with King Herod. And this is not just recorded in the Bible. Josephus makes a record of this event as well. And as he is declaring himself, they say he sounds like he's got the voice of a god. In Josephus' account, it talks about these outfits he has that was sparkling silver and gold. You see, Herod wanted people to look and think highly of him. To be recognised almost like as a godlike figure. And both the Bible's account and Josephus' account was because he failed and refused to give God the glory to which he deserved, he was struck dead. It's not the most attractive description, is it? And immediately he was consumed by worms, which kind of gives the impression that it happened really quickly. But if you've ever seen a worm eat, they don't tend to do things that quickly, even if they're really, really hungry. Whereas Josephus' account talks about it. And had stomach pains and having worms, it took a number of days, but still, not a pleasant way to go. But the bottom line, God will not accept the claim of Herod. He says, I'm the ultimate authority. Look at me. He yawns glory given to himself. So the passage begins with Herod believing he's the highest authority. So Herod finding out that he is far, he's just a small little vapour. In the hand of the Almighty God, who is rule and king of all. There's just two things I just want to look at as we think about this passage. One is opposing God, and secondly, looking at unbelieving prayer. I remember when I was younger, my life philosophy was as long as I'm smiling, I'm winning. That, that, I know I sell that to people all the time. My, my dad didn't like hearing it all the time, but um, he heard it many times. And the, the idea was, I'm going to do whatever I want. No one else is going to tell me what to do. And I thought, no one's going to stand in my way. It's pretty much the cry of our culture today, isn't it? Let me be who I say I am. Let me do whatever I want. Don't you interfere with my life. I am the ultimate ruler and authority of my life. And I've got to admit, I was at an event where I was proclaiming some big claim about how big and mighty and no one's going to tell me what to do. And it kind of actually felt kind of empowering at the time. But as empowering it it may feel at any given time, it's, it's rebellion against the Almighty God, whom all of us will one day stand before. According to Jesus, all will stand before him and all must give an account. All will either spend an eternity with him or an eternity in hell. There is no middle ground. And there and on that day, all your claims to authority, rule, autonomy will count for nothing. Only I am trusting in the shed blood of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness for my rebellion against you. But what about prayer? Now we regularly meet together for prayer as a church in our community groups and on Sunday mornings. 
Sometimes we pray for some pretty major issues, don't we? Whether it be something in our own family life or in, or in the bigger context. But I wonder, secretly, how often we actually think something's going to come of those prayer points. We pray them because, you no, know, as Christians, you should pray for these things if things aren't going well. Now, it's certainly not talking about a name it and claim, if you pray it, therefore you, it should happen. That's not the way the Bible talks about it. Certainly didn't work out that way for, for James. I'm sure people were praying for him. But so often we find people who are shocked or surprised that God can and does hear our prayers, responds and often even deals in some big things. But as we do so, we come before God in prayer, pleading with God according to his character. God, this is who you are. This is your nature. It brings glory to God when we depend upon him and we say, this is who you are. This is what you've done. Assuming you're doing that truthfully and correctly. And say, God, if it be your will, please act in this situation. And whether God acts in the way which we would hope he would act, or he acts in a different way, that we might give him all glory. We might not command him what he should or shouldn't do, but acknowledge that he is the king. He is the ultimate ruler. I am not. All of his ways are good and just. So as we're praying throughout the week, let's pray with some fervor, knowing that we are coming before the king of kings, the Lord of lords. And let's believe that God actually can and does act according to his great might in this world. Heavenly Father, it is a wonderful thing that we can come before the King of Kings, the Lord of Lords. We are such an insignificant figure in terms of the world in which we live, even though sometimes our pride might try to convince us otherwise. Lord, help us to be a people who genuinely lean upon you and not just in big things in all even little things the god that we will see you that you are a god who is good and faithful mighty and powerful always loving and caring for your people providing what we need not necessarily what we think we want lord help us to to give thanks to you when we see you intervene in the things that we are praying for that we might not take credit for our prayer or for any involvement that we have, but the glory would be given to you and to you alone. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen.